0: Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have
1: Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter,
0: and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team.
1: Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better.
2: We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast.
3: Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests.
0: Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode.
3: So uh, I'm here with uh, Kirsten Dewitt, as uh, emergency physician here at Hamilton Health Sciences, uh, and also one of the thrombosis physicians, and uh, the only emerge uh, thrombosis physician in Canada, I believe. Yes. <laughs> Maybe you could just tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, sister.
4: Yeah. So um, I originate from the UK, and I did all my emergency training there. And actually, before I went into emergency, I did internal medicine, and I've been working in research, particularly diagnostic pulmonary embolism research, for like the last. 16, 17 years and uh, the study that I was first tasked to do was a diagnostic pulmonary embolism study and uh, since then I've never lost my love for pulmonary embolism and in fact I was so interested in it that I came across to Canada to do a thrombosis fellowship in Ottawa and uh, now I get to do both of those specialties, eMERGE and thrombosis here in Hamilton.
3: Great, and we were talking before we, uh, uh, just briefly before, about um, about how thrombosis is now a, kind of a focus, and area of, of interest or focus that you can do with the Royal College. Maybe you could just maybe mention Yeah, that absolutely. Are, this,
4: yeah, this is really important and very unusual, but uh, from now on in McMaster and Ottawa and Montreal, there are official Royal College recognised training programmes for thrombosis and they offer either a one-year full-time or a two-year part-time training in thrombosis medicine, which would allow you to practice as a thrombosis physician. Um, And uh, there are two routes to that. Either you have to have training in internal medicine or to have training in emergency medicine. So any emergency medicine, FRCPC-trained physician can apply to do that and as of summer 2019 we will have a spot available here in McMaster.
3: As you said McMaster the birthplace of Wales. (laughs)
4: Um,
3: Perfect and so um, you just did a regional rounds talk uh, here for the eMERGE residents. Um, Maybe you could just kind of summarize what uh, the main points of your talk.
4: So we performed actually 73 interviews across Canada with emergency physicians which were designed to tell how they diagnose pulmonary embolism and uh, whether they use a structured approach or an evidence-based approach and their reasoning behind the choice of tests as well as a bit of probing to do with one of the barriers to using things like well score, perk rule um, and for the barriers and facilitators to trying to rationalize the number of CTs that you order. So we got a, a huge amount of information from the interviews and um, we probably found four main themes. Um, So the first theme was that in Canada, I think we live in fear a little bit of pulmonary embolism. And uh, we've started looking for pulmonary embolism in in patients who probably have no chance of having it because we're so scared of missing it. And I think possibly that risk is slightly overblown. And then the vast majority of patients who um, have pulmonary embolism missed, it's either because we never thought about it in the first place. Um, It's seldom because uh, clinical probability and d dimer failed. Um, And most of those patients will go back to the emergency. And certainly in in my clinics and thrombosis, I see a number of patients who have a delay to their diagnosis, and on the whole, they do well. So that's the first thing I think we're anxious about, pulmonary embolism, and then that results in us over-ordering CT scans because of this over-reliance on the CT report. And I think there's a little bit of hoping if it's the radiologist who calls the CT there or not, it relieves the burden on the emergency physician. And because of that, we're just, we're using score and D-Dimer a lot less than we should be. Uh, there were many other things that we found um, that there's a degree of lack of education and understanding about the validity of structured clinical probability scores and some confusion about whether they're good at classifying pretest probability. There are barriers to using the scores because sometimes even though we have smartphones they're still quite inaccessible because it takes a few minutes to appropriately apply the score to the patient to get the information you need from the patient and make sure that the points that you're thinking of are actually the same points in the Wells score. And then obviously telling the difference between the DVT score and the PE score, which can confuse people too. Actually, there's yeah. one thing that
3: didn't come up is that um, yeah. when. Uh one of the interview kind of quotes you put up was that uh, someone thought that it took too much time to use a CDR or clinical decision rule yeah.
4: in
3: terms of accessing, which I found interesting. And I wonder if that came from a resident because speaking as a staff, as I'm sure most staff would agree, ordering tests like CTs and things. It's reassessing patients where they had tests that they didn't probably need that actually wastes the time. It's not doing a proper assessment first, by far, in my opinion. That's true. <laughs> so
4: we, did, we only interviewed staff, actually. We didn't interview residents, but... You're right, I think there's an idea or it's a make-work project to do a well-score and a D-dimer because you have to remember to check the results, and a lot of people just assume that the D-dimer will be, be elevated and that they'll have to do the CT and therefore it's just delaying the whole process of ordering the CT, but in fact if you look at the bigger picture it, it certainly drives down the number of CTs you need, and I think from the patient perspective that's good. Because certainly here in Hamilton Health Sciences, they can sometimes wait six hours for the results of the CT, from the moment of ordering to getting those results back and everyone hates the emergency department
3: <laughs> especially the radiology yes it's overnight with the, yeah I mean, I mean just waiting for a radiology resident to, to get back to you overnight when they're quite busy with the trauma center exactly. or whatever else and, and so it t- takes quite a quite a bit of time <laughs> and something that may not even be required um so maybe before we kind of go into some of the uh possible roadblocks to appropriate scanning and then how we can more appropriately use um uh, D dimers and PERC, uh, the perk rule. Um, maybe we could just kind of review the, the general uh, P uh, diagnostic pathway. And then uh, you also met, uh, brought up a recent study, I think from last year, you mentioned where we're using uh, different cutoffs for high and low risk patients mm-hmm. 500
4: mm-hmm. versus 1,000. Yeah, so there's, there's actually two studies looking at that. And one study was the study that we have just finished doing, partly in Hamilton here, a CIHR study called the PEGED study. Um, which looked at using a higher threshold in low probability patients and a lower threshold for D-dimer in high probability patients. And interestingly, as Clive Kieran designed that study and started it off here, there was a group in the Netherlands, it turned out, doing something very similar, except they used a simplified version of the Wells score. Just uh, three components for the, they called it the YEARS algorithm, Uh, The three components were PE most likely, uh, signs and symptoms of deep vein thrombosis, hemoptysis. And they said if you don't have any of those elements, then you're low risk, and if you have one or more, then you're high risk. Um, And they actually used the exact same cutoff that uh, we used in the study here, which was if you're high risk, you have a cutoff of 500 Mm -hmm. with your D-dimer, and if you're low risk, you have a cutoff of 1,000.
3: Is this, is this something that you're seeing uh, people actually implement in the department? Well, you know, it's, that's
4: a really interesting question, and I think there is a lot of discussion at the moment around, you know, can is this ready for prime time? Can we implement this? First thing to say is the study, the peg study done here, uh, we don't have the results yet. The final patients are being followed up because each patient has a three-month follow-up. And then I think pretty quickly after that, the analysis and the results will be available. And I think we we'll would be looking to publish that in the next year. So, But we just don't know <laughs> if that's uh, if that's good or not. And um, the year's study, though, uh, was a management study in the Netherlands done at many hospitals. And it actually did show beautiful safety. So the, um, the miss rate for pulmonary embolism was very low. It was comparable with age-adjusted D-dimer. Um, and uh, certainly there has been a group in the US that applied that same year's algorithm to their large cohort, which they had collected data on prospectively, and they found an equally low uh, misrate for pulmonary embolism. So I think that is a safe algorithm and it, it is ready for implementation, but I think one of the things I learned was we shouldn't be leaving this up to the individual practitioner, we should say this is our departmental approach so that we feel that we have a degree of protection. Um, we say this is our policy, this, you know, you're not just some cowboy out on your own doing something that nobody else is doing. Uh, you have the comfort that this is actually what we're encouraged to use and this is what my colleagues are doing. So uh, what we're working on here is, is possibly implementing that year's algorithm um, and making it a department-wide strategy so people have that comfort.
3: Yeah, that definitely makes sense because I, I think one of the things that came up uh, from one of the physicians here is uh, the issue of differing risk tolerances from docs and and uh, having something that is the approach of a group certainly gives affords people protection from a medical legal standpoint. Whether or not they translate that to practice, I guess is a different matter. Yeah. But hopefully, that at least help uh, be helpful. Yeah. Um, and so I uh, just wanted to talk about barriers to appropriate CT scanning, some of the, some of the kind of the points that I think you kind of brought up that, that uh, stood out to me would be, um, so not, uh, not actually applying clinical decision rules, Perker, mm-hmm. Wells initially, uh, applying them inappropriately or then potentially ignoring the results and using distalt instead. Yeah. And so what, um, maybe you could kind of summarize what, what, how, I guess, those different kind of uh, areas of uh, uh, error and kind of diagnostic um, approach.
4: I think the most common thing I saw with these interviews was physicians saying, yes, I know about the WELLS score and I know about D-dimer. I I use it for teaching, but I don't actually use it myself. So to me, the most common thing was the WELLS score is for other people, it's not for me. Um, That came across time and time again. Someone else said, it's really useful if I want to order a CT scan because I can say to the radiologist (laughs) that the WELLS is this or that. But again, they're not actually using it for their own diagnostic practice, they're using it for, as a communication tool then. I think the biggest barrier is physicians actually just realizing, no, this score was designed exactly for me in my practice.
3: One of the other things that, that came up is um, the idea that um, clinical decision rules absolutely guarantee a diagnosis I think is maybe something that that some people seem to think um, and and that there is going to be the very very rare occasional case that potentially may be missed by the perk rule even potentially and I think and sometimes I think people may, Latch onto that anecdotal case to change their entire practice. And I think, mm-hmm. in addition to the radiation, there's also risks of uh, false positive CT and people being on anticoagulation for six months, which of course comes with own risks. And So, how do you kind of deal with that, um, that knowledge translation or, or teaching people that the risk is, is unfortunately part of medicine that you have to accept?
4: So. Yeah, so I think uh, what we failed at till now is explaining the bigger picture. Um, when the emergency physician hands on that patient to a clinic or to an inpatient service, you often let go of the patient, you think it's not your responsibility anymore. But if we make a diagnosis for something which ends up with a lot of complications when actually it was a false positive diagnosis, then that kind of is our doing. So I think there should be some form of closed-loop whereby um, we get some sort of feedback on the um, implications of our behaviour. So and um, diagnosing pulmonary embolism is not simply a desperate rush to get that scan that reports a filling defect there's got to be a little bit more thoughtful you know thought over the filling is the filling defect pulmonary embolism clearly we're not going to be saying in the emergency department oh it's not p so i'm not going to anticoagulate but um I think a larger understanding could lead to all sorts of things. For example, with a sub-segmental single-filling defect, we might be saying to patients, you know, we don't know if this is a blood clot or not. We're obviously erring on side of caution, giving you a blood thinner, but we're going to get a second opinion from a specialist and they're going to tell you if this is something to worry about or not. So it's maybe a slightly more thoughtful approach rather than thinking that we've saved a life every time we diagnose pulmonary embolism. And don't get me wrong, you know, emergency physicians have done amazing things and have for sure saved many, many lives in patients with pulmonary embolism. Unfortunately, we also miss them and I think that's because we're human and because pulmonary embolism can present a lot with other symptoms. Um, one thing I see a lot of is, is a preoccupation in patients with chest pain that you have to test for pulmonary embolism, but actually most patients with pulmonary embolism don't have chest pain, they just have some weird breathlessness that can't be explained properly by either their past history or, or their current clinical findings, so um, we just have to try our best as clinicians. Yeah,
3: <laughs> I, one the, I think one of the most important points you brought up that I think um, Maybe we don't kind of beat into the heads of our residents nearly enough. Is that diagnostic tests are far from perfect, and I think you were speaking specifically to CTs, um, CTPs, and how it's not a dichotomous. Yes, this is a PE. No, this yep. is not a PE. And it's it's and the idea that it's far superior to clinical decision making. Yeah. Um,
4: yeah. So, so actually the the combination of a low probability structured like a well score or something and a negative D dimer is a very sound and safe rule out for pulmonary embolism. It would be vanishingly rare for that patient to have pulmonary embolism, so much so that I would never, ever, ever, ever test anybody with any sort of imaging if they were a low well-score and a negative D-dimer, ever. Um, And a negative CT scan, is good at ruling out but we know patients who are high risk for pulmonary embolism actually will go on to develop pulmonary embolism in the next three months. Um, the most recent statistics show about seven percent of those patients are diagnosed with pulmonary embolism in the coming few weeks so it's not the be-all and end-all a CT scan and then we all were all aware of these small defects that you mm-hmm. see in CT and we don't really know what they are, we don't know if they're an embolism or if it's just that the contrast didn't flow correctly uniformly through all the blood vessels. Yeah, so so every test has its limitations and then I'm sure we've all experienced, you know, the initial CT scan report says no pulmonary embolism and then the formal <laughs> one comes back and it says actually there's pulmonary embolism. So every test like that is observer dependent so, you know, there's so many layers to a test <laughs>
3: Yeah, and I'm kind of curious, if you have some, and I'm sure this is probably not super uncommon, if you have a patient that has a, um, a very low-risk well or low-risk wells, or a negative perk, and, uh, and ends up with a negative dimer, and ends up getting a CT that's sub-segmental or equivocal, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you guys do with those mm-hmm. in the clinic, generally speaking?
4: Yeah, so, and that's a really interesting scenario. Um, so we're well aware of the false positive possibility, and if I had a patient who was low wells and negative D-dimer, I would really not believe that scan. Um, The difficulty is, in clinic the patient comes in after being told they've got a blood clot and actually there is no possibility of me talking that patient out of it. It's impossible. They've spent two nights at home in bed thinking they're going to die and then if they come to clinic and I say there's nothing wrong, you don't need this blood thinner, they'll just go to another doctor and get a blood thinner. what we try and do is limit the length of the time of the blood center to three months, um, but even then that can be tricky because um, often they don't want to stop because they have this profound belief that they could die if they stop. And that's particularly the case for you know, young people who have families. You know, Understandably, they've been told they have a life-threatening disease and they have young children. They don't want to stop anything that could protect them from more complications.
3: Yeah and and uh in I mean, we're very lucky in hamilton i should definitely say that with our thrombosis service i mean, it's very easy for us to talk to someone from thrombo at any any time of the day or night really and get some input and so um and i uh, and for for physicians out there that maybe are are uncomfortable just doing a leaving aside just all altogether um are are you guys? Do you guys see those patients in the clinic? or Do you suggest not scanning them despite say they have a negative uh, or uh, negative perk or low risk wells? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't think they need to scan a negative dimer? I'm just saying you don't think they need to scan mm-hmm. the, uh, the the physician is really uncomfortable. Do you see those patients in clinic frequently? Or do you, or do you see?
4: We seldom actually get a referral with a patient who hasn't somehow completed a diagnostic workup to the satisfaction of the emergency physician. Mm -hmm. But you bring up a good point, and that might be a good service to offer to relieve anxiety.
3: Yeah, and it might be a good idea for physicians to at least call and have discussion before a CT in those kind of scenarios. Yeah,
4: Yeah, and you know, I I should also say that one of the things that came across in our interviews uh, was... uh, some of our physicians said, well, if I'm in doubt, I'm going to order the scan, because when I've spoken to thrombosis in those scenarios, they've said order the scan. So <laughs> well, that hasn't been my
3: experience. That's oh, really? That's not, good. Well, I mean, yeah. I, think, I think when I've been uncertain, I, I, okay. I because like I was saying, you guys are so fantastic to talk to uh, at any hour. Um, there's definitely been more than a few times where I, I was not... 100% sure, and I spoke to thrombosis, yeah. They actually going to see the clinic without any further imaging, which is great. Really.
4: That's great. Yeah. It, just, it is, you know, everyone's so focused on emergency physicians, but we haven't even started on the intern, <laughs> And we yeah. haven't even looked at the thrombosis physicians, you know, and yeah. it's about practicing what you preach, and I think we're all uh, to blame a little bit for maybe not following guidelines.
3: Yeah, absolutely. One of the, Yeah, what are the other... Thoughts I, I wanted to bring up is, is so documentation, so um, I wonder if a lot of people feel they need to put down some number, some diagnostic test or something on the chart to prove that mm-hmm. there's not a P, and I just wonder what, what you would what write do on I, the chart. Yeah. Well, what
4: I do, I write the mm-hmm. well score down, yeah. and then when the D-dimer comes back, I write the D-dimer down.
3: And what about in a patient that you don't think requires any...
4: Any testing? Wells
3: or Yeah, I write nothing down. Nothing down. Okay, fair <laughs> enough.
4: <laughs> but I know that a lot of people in Canada will specifically document perk. Yeah. And I think some people it came off over in the interviews that they were frustrated that PERC will only work if you're under 15, mm-hmm. you know, because they clearly have other patients over the age of 50 who they really do not think they need to test their PE, but they just want to seal the deal and there yeah. isn't there's no way of doing it then other than a well score and a D-dimer.
3: Yeah, okay or at least documenting. I do not believe this is a PE for these reasons. I do not think they require any further testing. Oh yeah, um, and this is something I know you're kind of uh, working on. Um, Maybe just speak a little bit about uh, some of your thoughts about uh, bundling approaches or bundling tests Mm -hmm. for PE and and where you think that might go.
4: Well, it's an idea. So it's something we need to test and I just think back to the sepsis bundles or, you know, um, which was a slightly different sort of a thing in that they was to remember all the different aspects, whereas mm-hmm. this is more of a stepwise process. But I think there's some noise and cognitive overload for the physician to do all those reassessments in the process. Mm-hmm. And uh, it might be tempting in some scenarios to duck out the process. And I also noticed that some physicians got frustrated because they thought that doing a D-dimer increased the number of CT scans. And the only explanation for that can be that they didn't think the patient had pulmonary embolism in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make it more real to the physician that if you test for PE, you're testing for PE. You're going all the way through if you have to go. So the risk is sufficiently high that you're going down that road. And secondly, once you've made that decision, which might be the hardest decision to make, it's done for you. So you don't need to call radiology if you need a CT. You don't need to... Um, look at the results of the D dimer. You just need to have uh, uh, documented the structured pretest probability. Um, so time will tell whether that's something that the physicians like or don't like, and it's something that we might be testing next year. Um, and I expect it to be a little controversial. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's especially if, if there's going to be other tests along there, like an X ray. I think was something that uh, I think a Lemur or, or Crosley had brought up about. Would there be something that would would change the pathway or stop the pathway or even if there's a positive dimer. Uh, yeah, and they, like you said, at that point, people would have to be proactive and actually stop the pathway or stop yeah. the testing. And, so, and whether people would just kind of let it go, hopefully that would not be the case. <laughs> but anyway. Um, oh, yeah, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is so age-adjusted dimer and, and, and where we're at with that. And, and um, like I said, is yeah. separate than the from the year yeah. study that you are talking about.
4: I think age-adjusted d has been well validated now, and I think that's a very reasonable approach, if you want to take that approach, absolutely. And probably the most important thing is, you know, everybody chooses their approach and stick to it. It's like anything, know one thing and know it well and, and do it. So there's, I have no issues with age-adjusted d dimer at all.
3: Yeah. Are there any um, very important take-home points that you want physicians uh, that have to deal with diagnosis of PE? Uh, I think
4: if, if you're risk-averse, I think the really important thing is there's no better way of ruling out pulmonary embolism than using a structured approach and a D-dimer um, and documenting that clearly. That is your watertight approach. It will cause the least harm to the patient in that they'll be in the department for the least amount of time. Uh, they'll only have a CT scan if they absolutely have to have one, and um, you can feel very reassured that if the D-dimer is negative and there's low probability that they, they don't have pulmonary embolism. I think that's probably the most important message.
3: Yeah, and I think I've emerged in well, medicine in general. It's clear that we over-scan people, and this is something where we have a very clear, validated approach that can prevent so many CT scans from happening. It should definitely be the area we're focusing on. Well, thank you so much for, for um, the
1: rounds and then for our discussion. We really okay. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Kirsten DeWitt and Dr. Brendan Trotter for this awesome core content regarding the review of pulmonary embolism practices. I'm Kevin Dong, and here's my summary of the key points from this topic. Number one, Make sure to use your clinical decision rules and the proper scores to appropriately identify risk assessment and to guide your decision making. Number two, using a D-dimer in low-risk patients will be helpful in determining if the patient requires a CT scan or not, and this will reduce the number of unnecessary CT imaging. Dr. DeWitt mentions that the false negative rate of a PE with low pretest probability and a negative D-dimer is extremely low and that Imaging is not necessary for these patients. Number three, there are new studies such as the Ear Study and the Peguette Study looking at different approaches to risk stratify patients with potential PE. Regardless of the potential benefits of the results, it will be important for departments to come to a consensus on a PE protocol that will aid physicians to have the same approaches to making decisions for PE workout. Number four, huge pearl was dropped by Dr. DeWitt where she described that many patients with PV don't present with chest pain, and it actually is breathlessness or shortness of breath that is much, much, much more common, whether that's in the history or by physical exam findings. Number five, CT scans are not perfect, and they run the risk of false positive findings that may subject patients to unnecessary prolonged anticoagulation, which has its own risks. In follow-up, Patients who are started on anticoagulation for a potentially false positive PE will likely want to continue their anticoagulation due to the fears of potentially having a PE. Thus, it is imperative to order the CT scan appropriately when the clinical decision tools are aptly used. Number six, documentation is important in all aspects of medicine. Dr. DeWitt suggests that if there is someone you think may be low risk, it is important to write the WELL score and or the D-dimer and the PERC score if applicable. If there's no risk of a PE, then there's no need to document a score as it is not necessary. Number seven, Kirsten notes that the age-adjusted D-dimer, in review, this is age times 10 as your upper range of cutoff after the age of 50. This is widely validated and is appropriate to use as the upper limit for your D-dimer. And that's it for this month's core content. Stay tuned for the Residence Corner with Joanna Dita. Ciao!
2: Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. I'm your host, Joanna, and today we have a great resident bite for you. Have you ever been at work in the emergency department or another department and gotten frustrated with a particular process? Have you ever thought to yourself, man, if only I could change how we deal with this. It would save us so much time. It would save us so much money. It would save me a headache and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I certainly have those moments. And here with me today, I have the pleasure of introducing to you Dr. Rakesh Gupta, a resident colleague of mine, to talk to us about quality improvement research. Rakesh, thank you so much for being here.
5: Thanks so much for having me. As Joanna said, my name is Rakesh. I'm a PGY-4 emergency medicine resident at McMaster University, and I'm currently doing a master's in quality improvement.
2: Now, Rakesh, tell us a little bit about why you chose to do your fellowship here in in quality improvement. What exactly inspired you in the first
5: place? So my interest in QI started before I became a doctor even, when I used to have a very different career. I was an economics major in university, and like any good econ major, I wanted a job in finance. And so I went out and got one. And say what you will about the financial industry man, things ran smoothly there. We were so well supported. We had so much information and technology at our fingertips at all times, all just to make sure that we made the right decision every time. Now, fast forward a few years to my first hospital rotation, and it was really a rude awakening. There was so much inefficiency and redundancy and room for errors. I remember thinking there must be a better way for us to do this for patients.
2: It sounds like you had a whole other career in life prior to this. And truly remarkable, uh, given that most of us don't know about what all of, uh, a lot of our residents are up to prior to starting residency or prior to becoming emergency room doctors. Now, for those of us who don't know, what exactly is quality improvement? Is it a matter of proposing a change and just implementing it? Does it just happen like that? It certainly does not seem that easy or straightforward initially.
5: So, it's... It's a bit more than just proposing a change. Uh, Quality improvement is a way of achieving some goal that we set by using the scientific method to first figure out what is wrong, so to form a diagnosis, and then based on that to decide which is the right change to implement, the right treatment, and then how to implement it effectively. It's a toolkit for improving the way we deliver care to patients to make healthcare more safe timely, effective, more efficient, equitable, and more patient-centered.
2: It certainly sounds like a very rewarding type of work and maybe the kind of things that all of us aim for when we first start medical school or residency, when we say we want to become better doctors, we want to be more effective, efficient, but it sounds like quality improvement provides you a tool of how to get there as opposed to just wishing that it happens, if I may say so. Now, clearly, you've advocated for why you think quality improvement work is important, but tell me a little bit about why is it important for emergency medicine healthcare professionals to begin with?
5: Yeah, great question. So I think right now we spend so much energy in medical school and residency and even afterwards uh, focused on our own clinical knowledge and our own decision-making. And obviously, that's critical uh, to how we perform as physicians, but... We also need to start considering the patient experience. Can we flow patients through the emergency department more efficiently? Can we provide safer care? Can we do a better job with our discharge planning processes, arranging follow-up, providing instructions, and so on? I think we can.
2: I like the optimism there. And I can assume that with the ever-increasing number of patients that we see in our emergency room, all of these things will become more and more important. And for those of us who are inexperienced in this field, whether it's residents, medical students, junior or senior staff for that matter, how can they get exposure to this type of work? And maybe specifically, how can they get involved with this type of work?
5: Yeah, so luckily there's a growing interest in quality improvement work, particularly at academic centers, but really everywhere nowadays. Uh, and so if you're a medical student, a resident, and any of what I'm saying rings true to you, I'd urge you to talk to some of the senior residents or staff you know, and have them connect you with the people leading these sorts of projects locally. There's also some great resources online. So the IHI or the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has some great online free workshops. CAPE has a quality improvement uh, section now. Uh, there's lots of foam med blogs, which we love in emergency medicine. Um, but ultimately I think there's no substitute for talking to someone who's enthusiastic about the subject and uh, actually, you know, getting your hands dirty and talking about it and maybe working through some real projects.
2: Well, we certainly hope we have ignited some interest in our listeners to pursue this type of work and maybe at least start getting interested in it and finding out how they can get involved further. And if there's one take-home message, Rakesh, that you would want our listeners to leave here with when it comes to their interest in quality improvement, what would that be?
5: Uh, so I think that ultimately, quality improvement is all about making our system work better for our patients. And I think if you've ever had the experience of being a patient in our healthcare system, you can probably understand that there's a lot of room for improvement there. And uh, quality improvement is all about finding out where those opportunities are and capitalizing on them so that we can do better for our patients. And so if that's something that you care about, then I think uh, you should think about getting involved in uh, in this great uh, field,
2: And isn't that one of the reasons why we wanted to start medicine in the first place for most of us? At least it certainly was for me. Thank you so much, Rakesh, for being here today. Such a pleasure to have you here talk about quality improvement. This is Residence Corner Bite, and see you all next time.
0: All right, everyone. This month's shout out goes to all the people that came out to our tri-divisional retreat, which happened on April 18th, 2019. It was really awesome to spend the morning brainstorming and thinking with such amazing, creative people. A special thanks also goes out to Drs. April Cam and Dr. Leanne Ship Day, who both helped facilitate the day with me. Thanks also to our leaders for the opportunity to make this thing happen. Now, we also have a bunch of shout outs to go to all the CCFPEM residents who just finished their resident research day. Dr. Kevin Dong told me that he was super impressed, and I'm sad that I didn't get an invitation. Maybe next year. Now, in terms of uh, other things that are coming up on the horizon, we're, a bunch of us are going to Cape in a couple of weeks, so we'd love to know if you're heading out there, too. So if you're listening to the podcast and you want to find out who else is coming, either email Teresa Chan, you know her email, or you can email us at Podcast. At gmail.com, and we'll get you in touch with the team who's playing a night out on the town in Halifax. All right, everyone, thanks again for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region.
1: Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast.
3: So, if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well.
2: Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Macemerge out!